you're having that one-on-one time with him every day, you're so much more able to recognize the voice when you hear it. So it's like, you might not hear it every single day loudly. You might, I mean, in different, but in those moments for the the profound call, it's so clear. It's so many scripture passages talk about um, being the sheep, you know, and hearing his voice. My, My sheep know my voice. They know my name. Um, and, and they recognize the voice. And so, yes, that is how it is when we've got that day-to-day um, conversation going with him. When the big things happen, you're very clear on it. Hello. Welcome to Beyond Damascus, the show where encounter meets mission. My name is Dan Dimite, and I am really excited because we're doing a special interview today with Jeannie Mancini, who is the CEO for the uh, March for Life. Jeannie, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, if you're... If you're joining us for the first time, this is a show where Encounter meets Mission. Our heart uh, burns with this desire to be a church that is like St. Paul, who encountered uh, Jesus on the road to Damascus, and that that encounter was so powerful, so impactful in his life, that he went and he sat on a couch and did nothing with it. <laughs> Wrong, right? This is beyond Damascus. So those Damascus encounters are meant to lead to a life of mission, that when we have a life-changing encounter with Jesus. Like St. Paul, we can't help but share that encounter with other people. And so encounter is always meant to lead to mission. And I love this conversation we're going to have with Jeannie today because uh, I think sometimes, Jeannie, you could, we'll, we'll dive into this, but I think sometimes we buy into the lie that if I've encountered Jesus Christ and I want to be on mission with Jesus Christ, all of my missionary activity has to be inside the church, right? And you're living uh, in the uh, right to life world in the March to Life world where uh, you are engaging not in uh, in mission in the church, but outside of the church, which is absolutely critical. Could you share a little bit what your role is and what you're doing with your life? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. I'm a fan of your podcast. I, I love it. You can just tell that the Holy Spirit is really at the center of it. And just everything that you're doing at Damascus is so beautiful. So I'm Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, honored to be part of it. So I'm the president of the March for Life. Um, I've been in this role for the last, it's, I'm coming up on my 11th anniversary here soon. And um, within that role, I basically oversee a beautiful organization. We've got about 15 staff. Um, So I I mostly run a nonprofit. That's mostly what I do. But, um, and I'm just about to do more of this. For many, many years, we've been trying to get to the point where I can just get out and do communications and spokesperson work and some advancement work and um, do a lot of work on the Hill. And so I'm, we're, we just, our brand new executive director just started yesterday. So I'm excited to be able to do more of that very soon. Um, and so, That's awesome. so the March, I should say, since I'm saying who I am and what I do, the March is the largest annual human rights demonstration in the world. It began the year after Roe v. Wade came down. So Roe v. Wade came down in 1973. And so the March for Life began in 1974. So this past January was our 50th March for Life. And we literally have hundreds of thousands of people come every single year to the march. 
We also, a number of years ago, and if we have time, I can go into this more, but a number of years ago within the organization began a state march initiative. Um, really, we're doing some organizational discernment at the time so that we knew really where, uh, where to spend our time and energies. And so in 2019, we had our first state march in my home state of Virginia. We got 7,500 people out to the state capitol that spring, that April. And uh, since then, we've continued growing the state march program. So this year we're in eight. Next year we'll be in 16. And um, I'd love if we get a chance to talk a little bit about our Ohio state march that's coming in October. <laughs> So absolutely save that for later. That's, that's amazing. I think it'd be neat to talk about kind of the importance of what is the what's the federal role now and what's the state role oh, yeah. as well. My dad was at the first ever March for Life wow. uh, as a high schooler, which oh, is kind of yeah. cool that he went with his church in high school, and then I became a youth minister who took like hundreds and hundreds of high schoolers to the March for Life over the years. Yeah. And so it's it's just neat how. Um, those experiences we have when we're young, we pass those on to our children and then they pass them on, right? That this is, uh, that it's a generational uh, faith that we live and a faith that's passed on through the, the importance of our, our families. I, I know that um, you, you really have a passion for marriage and family life. That's probably what drew you to this role that you currently have. What, uh, you want to share a little bit about your upbringing, how you came into relationship with Jesus Christ and, uh, and and some of your passions around marriage and family? I would love to. Um, what a, a beautiful question. Thank you. So um, I grew up Catholic in a very, I would, in a, in a wonderful family, very social justice oriented. Um, when you say that, what do you mean, Jeannie? Because yeah. there, there are some Catholics that are like, uh, from a, a strong Orthodox perspective, they're like, yes, thank you. I want social justice-oriented families. Other Catholics are like, I hate you that you just <laughs> used that phrase, and I'll never speak to you again. So how do we how do we take that phrase and use it in a healthy, holy manner? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is, okay, literally, Dan, we could talk about that topic for like an hour. because Let's do it on another <laughs> episode, because I that drives me crazy. I, yeah, how the, the, how polarized we yeah. are in this. The truth of the matter is the church's social teachings are absolutely beautiful. No other they're church. They're insanely beautiful. I mean, really, yeah. I'm, they're incredible. And their very foundation is the inherent dignity of the human person. So what I meant by the trite phrase was that, <laughs> that uh, my family was very social justice focused. So we would do soup kitchens and things like that. We would pray before meals. But um, I and went to church on Sundays, all of that. And I have two aunts that are that are religious sisters. One is recently deceased, but very kind of lefty, too, at the same time. So um, in the Diocese of Arlington, which anyone who's in that diocese knows, like lefty there is probably middle of the road for other other dioceses. But it's like, <laughs> that, <is laughs> true. that little caveat. Um, <laughs> But as for my personal relationship with the Lord, I went on something called a youth encounter when I was in high school. I was a junior in high school, and it absolutely changed my life. The best way I can describe it is I feel like the lights of my life came on at that wow. moment. And I still, I mean, even now as I speak about it, I get a little choked up because I just had such an experience of God's unconditional love. And my life has never been the same since then. And shortly after, I got involved in the charismatic renewal a little bit, a little bit as a high school. I was in something called the Dream Team in uh, Fairfax. <laughs> I know we did like confirmation retreats and, and youth in the spirit seminars and what have you. 
And then I went off to college and I kind of got away from a lot of that, frankly, when I went to college. Um, and, and then after college, anyway, so that, that was the start of my relationship with the Lord. And it's of course been a journey since then with some, you know, ebbs and flows, but, uh, that, that would be the start of it, but I, that forever changed my life. And, um, I'm, I'm forever grateful because I know so many brothers and sisters that I have, and that I know have never had that beautiful experience of God's love. Yeah. How would you describe if you can remember what that encounter felt like? Mm -hmm. What was the experience like? It was really an experience of profound peace and love. I probably thought that I was a pretty self-confident teenager, but probably wasn't. And just having such a profound experience of being loved unconditionally and okay, like in my skin and who I was, it was just life-changing for me. Um, and so again, I would wish that upon everyone. And, and I think along those lines, again, I'd been this practicing Catholic and involved in youth group and everything, but suddenly I was very motivated to have a personal relationship with the Lord. And that's totally different. Uh, so my life took a different trajectory in that sense and one of adventure. I mean, I, my joy became so much more full I, because of that experience. It wasn't like, I think I'd probably had a stereotype um, about religious people that they were very boring and stoic. And um, suddenly I learned that wasn't at all the case and that really the full life is the life that's one lived with the Lord and responding to his calls. Um, yeah, so, I love that. Yeah. What a beautiful description. I think sometimes when we talk about encountering Jesus, it, it, it seems so mystical or foreign. And there's something about using those words like you were filled with peace and love, that that your life had a, a, a longing for a personal relationship with Jesus and that there was a new joy. And uh, I like, you know, in the charismatic circles, a lot of times people will use this phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit, you know, where Jesus talks about how um, that you will be baptized with fire in the Holy Spirit. And that, um, you know, I often say that that experience, that encounter moment with the presence of God or the the power of the Holy Spirit is often a a tangible experience of the Father's love that you you described as this experience of peace and love. And it's that peace and love has to become real and tangible in our life because any authentic relationship with another, um, love is not a, a mere concept or intellectual assent. It is, it's an experience of the other. And, and that, that's beautiful. So how did that mark? You said it was a life-changing experience, a life-changing encounter. How did you, how did that mark the future tra- trajectory of your life as a junior in high school? Well, I mean, everything then became discerning. You know, I was trying to discern next steps. So um, after college, I did a volunteer corps. And then after that, I became a youth minister. So I walked in your shoes too, although yeah. I, didn't, I didn't last as long as you all have in, in youth ministry. Um, but even after youth ministry, I worked in campus ministry. So really uh, for the first, I guess it was 12 or 13 years of my career, I worked for the church. So I worked as a youth minister, a campus minister. I then got my master's in theology of marriage and family from the Pontifical Institute. And you had mentioned, you know, if I could talk about that. So I do feel a real call in my life to help build a culture of life through really through God's plan for marriage and family and life. It's just so beautiful. And so many people don't know it um, and the church's teachings on that. And so so I went to the JP2 Institute and then somewhere along, I guess I'd been working for the church at that point 
a good 12 years in, in different capacities. And then I had a call to public policy, which was very unique and different. And um, I could tell you some, well, anyways, it was a very, I went from the JP2 Institute to working for the United States Agency for International Development, which is the largest distributor of contraceptives in the entire world. And so then suddenly to be like, okay, how do I like bring our understanding of the human person into public policy in this kind of radical way? And that that was interesting and challenging and God was faithful and, and was leading me every step of the way. Wow. That's amazing. What was, when you took those first steps, like out of mission inside the church to mission outside the church, if that's an appropriate way to even yeah. say it, uh, what you said you felt called there. What, what was that call like? Well, it was preceded by a six day silent retreat. So like every year I go on an annual silent retreat, but I went once in my lifetime, I've gone on like a week long silent retreat. And uh, I was really just trying to sense like, what is the next step? And um, even though I'd lived around the country at this stage, I'd lived in Michigan, I'd lived in Arizona, I was really sensing a call more into the public policy realm in Washington, D.C., Oh, and as I'm speaking, I can remember the moment now because I had forgotten. I was invited to participate at a UN conference. It was called the Commission for the Status of Women, which hmm. uh, sounds great. Sounds great. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> it, it always sounds great. It, uh, Being okay. pro-choice sounds exactly. great. <laughs> it's so yeah, uh, exactly. It was a little surprising to me that the Commission on the Status of Women. Maybe it wasn't that surprising, but really had a lot of confusion about what it means to be a woman and how that's a beautiful and, you know, a beautiful dignified thing and how it's inherently different than what it means to be a man. And I, at that, at that conference at one point, and so this was like in the early 2000s, I, I just watched a lot of negotiations happening for life issues. And it was, that's when it was, I, I heard in my heart, like from God, like an, it kind of an inner voice, not literally a voice from him, but like, you're called to this. And I, and I wanted it. Like my desires were right there. And I was like, I want to do everything possible to help these people understand what it means to be human, like an adequate anthropology, how these different policies that they're forwarding are terrible for humanity. And so from there, I sure it, it took a while. I had to persevere, but then I got a job, um, you know, as an abstinence advisor in the office of HIV AIDS. And then from there, I was doing more abstinence work. And ultimately, I went to the office of the secretary at the Department of Health and Human Services and was a policy advisor in global health. From there, I went, now I'm kind of doing my intro. From there, I went to a public policy think tank, Family Research Council, and I was their spokesperson nice. on life issues. And I loved that when I was, that was just really fun. Basically, you analyze different life issues and then talk to the press about you know, these, what the FDA is approving or what HHS is doing or what have you. And then from there, I went to the March for Life. Nice. Praise God. That's so exciting. I, I love how you described that call. I think sometimes um, Catholics live in mission paralysis mm -hmm. because we don't want to miss God's call and we don't want to mess it up. So we just sit in discernment forever and we do nothing. And it's like you were you were doing mission and and then through mission, God called you into a deeper mission. But it was at a, this moment of clarity and you, you being obedient to those moments of clarity are so important. I remember when I was I was a missionary right after high school, and um, I went to, after my missionary year of service, I was 
being trained to start a uh, young adult Catholic young adult ministry program called St. Paul's Outreach at Ohio State University. And as I was being trained up uh, on young adult ministry, everything I received in young adult ministry, I processed for youth ministry. And um, I was just sitting there in the, in this classroom learning about young adult ministry. And I was like, God, why do I keep thinking about youth ministry? And he was just like, because I want you to do youth ministry. And I was like, oh, okay. And it's like, and, and that literally set the direction of my life of doing youth ministry and serving the young church. And it's, you know, I think sometimes when you, when you have that back and forth relationship with, with, with the Lord and, and Jesus is a regular uh, person of conversation, it's those moments of like, I'm just in conversation. And I, I asked him a question and he spoke his word and you, you almost, it sounds like the same exact thing, Jeannie, where like you were there and you're like, Oh wow. Like God, what's the, like, I'm seeing this is, am I called to this area? Boom. I'm called to it. And, and then we don't question the call when we hear his voice, right? It's so easy that when it, when it comes from him, it's, when the, you know, cause there's definitely times where I'm like, you know, doing youth ministry where I'm like, Hey, this maybe isn't the most exciting thing ever. And I'm sure there's times you get very nice email correspondences sent to you that you're probably like, this isn't the most exciting thing. But when you have heard his voice, the call is so clear. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's like Ignatian discernment that he speaks in that clarity. And I think particularly, and I'm sure most of your listeners are right here, but when we pray every day and we take that time, um, whatever that looks like, you know, whether it's taking time for meditative prayer every day, which I would highly recommend, like for young people, it's the single most important thing that they can do. And it's just, it's so critical. When you're having that one-on-one time with him every day, you're so much more able to recognize the voice when you hear it. So it's like, you might not hear it every single day loudly, you might, I mean, in different, but yeah. in those moments for the, the profound call, it's so clear. It's the, so many scripture passages talk about um, being the sheep, you know, and hearing his voice. My, my sheep know my voice. They know my name um, and, and they recognize the voice. And so, yes, that is how it is when we've got that day to day conversation going with him. When the big things happen, you're very clear on it. Um, but then of course there's desolation and you have to, you know, follow the rules for desolation when that comes along as well. Yeah. You know, it's funny cause this show is called beyond Damascus and, um, Paul was actually called to a, a life of ministry outside the church. And even to some extent to a life of public policy in, in acts nine, when he, when, uh, the Lord was speaking to Ananias, Paul's destiny over Paul's life, he said, you know, this is the chosen instrument of mine to, to carry my name before the Gentiles and before Kings. And so Paul was doing ministry to the Gentiles outside the church. Right. And, and then even before Kings, and you look at the prophets who uh, so many of the prophets, their ministry was was involving um, interaction with the kings and, and the king's court. Uh, you even have Paul in prison. You know, I love when he's talking to the, in his letter to uh, uh, the Philippians, he, he talks, he's writing about how Caesar's court, there's members of Caesar's court who have received the gospel and heard the gospel. So he's on Capitol Hill, if you will, in prison, sharing the gospel, and people are coming into relationship with Jesus and being saved because of that, which is, so what would you say to the Catholic who's like, man, I am feeling the nudge to public policy. I'm feeling the nudge to get involved in government, but I am scared to death of the insults, the rejection, the cancel culture. I'm scared to death of what will come if I answer that call. Ooh. 
Well, anytime that there's deep fear like that, you have to really look at it because we know that God doesn't speak through fear. That's often a tool of the enemy of God. And so to be very aware of that, like if there is a lot of fear, think about what is the deep fear? Ask God, where is this fear coming from? Um, and mm. what what is the fear? Like be really specific about what it is. But I would just say with anything, whether it's public policy or youth ministry, because truly I am blown away that you've been in youth ministry for this period of time. And yeah, I, that, that's yeah. true. I don't know what's scarier, Capitol <laughs> Hill or sixth grade boys. Uh, the, there's right. definitely fear associated with yeah. both. I've <laughs> Yeah, I sh- I kind of I've rushed. I didn't. I skipped one little part of my story, which is, I was a religion teacher for one year, of high school. Religion <laughs> teacher. Oh yes. And it was at the end of that that I went running towards public policy. That's the year that I had been. I let me tell you, any day of the week, you could ask me like, is the public policy harder than the um, being a high school religion teacher? High school religion was the worst. Like it was hard for them, <laughs> and it was hard on me, and it was so. Those are tough environments. And it's really like, Lord, what is my call? What is my call? You know, and and recognizing in every call, you're not going to have 100% of the time fulfillment. There are going to be really hard and humble things in every single call. And there are in this call, and I know that there are in yours, but just, Lord, what is the call for me? And so for me to go into public policy was shocking. I never expected that. I was a really religious gal, and I thought I'd always sort of be in that realm, but I've loved it. It's incredibly fulfilling and beautiful. So be not nice. afraid. I mean, in the end, yeah, I love that, Jeannie. Thank you. What, what? How? How do you respond to criticism or negativity from others? Like when someone, you know, if you if you get, I'm assuming you're probably in one of the hot seats in our nation where people don't really like the work you're doing. And so when you get criticized, how do you respond to that internally? So it um, so it blesses your spiritual life as opposed to wounds you as a person. Couple, couple, I couple moments come to mind. Once I uh, got a, a letter, a handwritten note from the head of Planned Parenthood saying that someone had made a donation in my name, and that that really shook me up. I got a second note from her on that too. And with that, I mean, just prayer. I, I really prayed, and then I shook it off. I, I remember talking to a priest about it because I was just kind of so creeped out by that. Um, and then another time, I'm thinking of. There was this really nasty thing written. It was in my former job at Family Research Council, a really nasty thing written about the work that I do that was lies. I mean, it wasn't true. And I was going to daily mass right after that. And they did this beautiful, like almost like a deliverance prayer after daily mass, which they'd never done before. And I felt like it lifted right away. So I think there's there's that beautiful prayer. It's it it comes from Ephesians, uh, Ephesians five. Well, no, wait, is it Ephesians 6? Sorry, Ephesians 5 is the marriage passage. Ephesians 6 is the armor of God. And I think, so I do really try to to put that armor on like every day. And and particularly um, for me, um, the the shield um, of faith to ward off the darts of the enemy, because I feel like they can come at you and kind of, you know, upset your peace. When I do lose my peace, I try to remember that, like, hey, why have I lost my peace? And then to ask the Lord, like, oh, please help me. So I'm kind of a contemplative at heart. And so I don't know how I would do this 
without being that way, I guess. Yeah. That's how we create. No, that's so beautiful. And I, I do think you have to protect your peace uh, because it's, it, it is, you see people who start either in church ministry or in uh, public policy. And, and so often, even if you're not in full-time ministry, even, just if you've been redeemed by Jesus Christ and your mind has been set on, on the, the way, the truth, and the life, so often you can become bitter at the darkness that's in the world. And bitterness is not a tool of the, the Lord Jesus for victory, right? It's a tool of the evil one. And it's, he, he does, uh, he uses any way possible to darken our hearts. And sometimes he uses uh, bitterness to, to, to darken us against love. And, and so it, it's beautiful that you're able to fight and protect your peace like that. Yeah. If I may, um, on that. So we even know in scripture, it talks about, don't let a bitter root like crop up. I don't remember the exact passage, uh, but I've been blessed to be part of encounter ministries this past year. I'm like a first year student graduating to the second year. And it's helped me so much, even like, look, I've got my master's in theology. I've been living this walk for a lot of time. I'm in my early fifties right now, but one of the main messages that's been so profound to me is always forgiving and not allowing any kind of bitterness to crop up and like doing an examination almost every single day, because to the extent that we do allow any bitterness to be in our heart, it's like a self-inflicted poison and it's a block. I mean, it's a block to be able to experience God's joy and his peace. And if we can, you know, really pray for those who've hurt us in whatever way and bless them, there's a power in that that's just truly incredible. And I want my yeah, brothers amen. and sisters in Christ to use those tools more. I mean, they're such easy tools, but we'd be a lot happier of a bunch, I think, if we use those a little bit more. Amen. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. The let's talk about the federal battle. So we've yeah. we've uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, there's been a victory there. Why should we still do the federal march for life? And what is the federal effort right now in the pro life movement? Yeah. Okay. So. We're just at about a year ago where Roe was overturned. It was overturned a year and a week ago. And um, it took 50 years to overturn Roe. And a couple of things. One, one that's fun to think about is other human rights issues that have been decided at the Supreme Court. So one would be racial discrimination. So originally allowed by the Supreme Court in the late 1880s by um, Brown, not, by Plessy v. Ferguson. 56 years later, that was overturned by Brown v. Board of Education, ruling that racial discrimination was wrong. And it was about a decade later when Loving v. Virginia was handed down by the Supreme Court. Loving v. Virginia is allowing interracial marriage. And that was in the 1960s when the Supreme Court handed that down. And I don't know, Dan, about you, but for me to think that it was only in the 1960s that the Supreme Court allowed interracial marriage, it just sounds so weird. I'm surprised. And yeah. when it got handed down, only 4% of Americans agreed with the decision. 4% wow. of Americans agreed with wow. the decision. So it took 58 years to correct this racial discrimination thing. It's taken us 50 years, but we're in this for the long game. So that's one. Just in terms of culture, I think it's really important to state that. Now, yeah. by way of clarification, when Roe v. Wade was handed down by the Supreme Court in 1973, it made abortion legal in all 50 states. When Roe v. Wade was overturned, whoo, we're having some thunderstorms. I don't know if you just heard that, but... I did. That was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> when Roe v. Wade was overturned, 
crack. And, uh, when Roe v. Wade was Mount over- Sinai, yeah, when Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Dobbs decision last year, it didn't make abortion illegal in all states. So it didn't like undo exactly what the original one had done. So Roe v. Wade makes abortion legal in all fifty states. Dobbs decision overturns Roe, but it doesn't make abortion illegal. What it did was allow states to enact protections on life prior to viability, which is like 20 weeks or so. So in a year, we've had about 25 states enact really good laws. So that means like 18 of them have laws from the moment that uh, from the moment of conception, really, which is amazing. So 18 states a year ago couldn't do that, but they have them now. Um, And then we have some states that have enacted laws at 12 weeks or at the heartbeat, six weeks, et cetera. Now we have a whole other, you know, half of the states, another 25 that have enacted some really bad laws like California and Michigan and what have you. So um, at the federal level, it would be wonderful for us to pass a federal limit that would be a ceiling on these states. So the Californias and the Michigans of the world would not be able to have late term abortions like they are now. Maybe they'd limit it to 15 weeks. So it would decrease the number of abortions and it would it would put us in line with most of the rest of the world. But all of Europe has limits after like 12 weeks or 13 weeks or 14 weeks. The United States is only one of seven countries around the entire world that allows late term abortion. And it's with the likes of China and North Korea and Canada. So which usually aren't the people we want to be matched right. with <laughs> to human rights issues. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so. In addition to that, so the question again was about the federal role, like why do we still need to march? In addition to that, so we fight every single year in appropriations for life protective pieces of legislation or or rioters, as we call them. So one example of that is the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits taxpayer funding for abortion in the United States, for most abortions. There are a few, few small exceptions. It is arguably the most impactful pro-life policy ever. It's saved over two and a half million lives from abortion. If we stop fighting for that at the federal level, we lose it like that. The other side is just sadly ready to dive in and to do away with the Hyde Amendment, which used to be bipartisan until just a few years ago. So there are yeah. all sorts of fights. We, I think we should still be fighting for a federal limit and also fighting for Hyde Amendment appropriations, all these other things. Plus, the other side's very aggressive. Right after Dobbs came down, they tried to do pass the Women's Health Protection Act, which would go way further than Roe. So we, in short, we can't stop fighting at the federal level, but now we have to also fight at the state level. Yeah. I love that. So the, the, it's, 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 thank you for sharing that. And I think there's such an urgent need. I've noticed, if you will, after Roe v. Wade was overturned, there was almost a, uh, a, a breath. And then in, in the youth ministry world, there's even like, well, do we even have to go to the March for Life anymore? <laughs> you know, and like for the March, for, I, I, I like taking young people to the March for Life for for so many years was so powerful because it allows a young Catholic and not just a young Catholic, any, any age Catholic, see the obligation that they have to be involved in public policy. And there's this, there's this, um, and federal public policy, not just local public policy, but the, and I feel like we're almost afraid as Catholics nowadays to teach our children and to teach from the pulpit that as a, as a 
faithful Catholic, you are required to participate in public policy. You are, it's not that, oh, it's so dark and stressful and it makes me anxious. So I'm just going to avoid it. Or I don't like the news. So I'm not going to listen to the news ever again. And, uh, and of course there, you have to protect your peace, as you said, and defend that. But there, the beauty of our social doctrine and our social principles, there's a principle of participation that says as, as a Christian, I am called to be a light in the world. <laughs> and so I am called to participate. And I think the March for Life is one of the best examples of raising Christian awareness of our call to participate and not just to participate from a passive secret uh, behind the ballot box position, but to participate in the open forum with our voice and with our our power. A hundred percent. So I was looking real quick on my computer, if I could pull up one of my favorite quotes, and I've like lived and breathed by it this year is from St. John Paul II. And it says exactly what you just said, Dan. It's from um, Christi Fidelis Laici. So the call to the laity. And he Mm -hmm. essentially says, consider the deepest unrest in the world today, the economic, the social, the religious, the political unrest, consider the dark spots. And literally, like, just to consider it. And then he says to the laity, to you and me, this, this then is your vineyard. This is where you are called to be salt and light. This is the vineyard of the laity where you are called to be salt and light. And so, like, when we hear about all the horrific things, like the the trans movement and all the, you know, I say to my husband sometimes, I'm like, this, this is your vineyard. You know? and he's like being really negative about something. I'm like, this is your vineyard, you know, and he'll remind me too. But um, it's our vineyard. This is, yes. we are called to be salt and light here. And it's not easy. It's not easy, but it is what we are called to, especially as lay people. Well, and it's, I love that you mentioned that because uh, if you've ever, if you've never read that, uh, letter from John Paul II, Christe Fides Leite, please do it. It is, uh, I think, the best written um, uh, sacramentality of baptism. It just basically says, what does it mean to be baptized? This is how you're called to live as a baptized Christian in the world. And it's just... it. Sometimes all this parish renewal, which is so good, and even lay ministry renewal like Damascus, so good, it can it can confuse us as the laity that I'm actually living the missional life of the church without actually living the missional life of the church. Right. That the, the church is meant to, uh, as Vatican II shared, open wide the doors. So we are not only open wide the doors to let people in, but open wide the doors to get out, to go out into the world and to live the faith in the secular world, which is um, if all we do as Catholics is ministry in, in intra in the church. We we actually fail to be church, right? I always say the church isn't meant to be a country club that serves members only, but a deployed army seeking to bring the kingdom of God at, uh, at hand. And so, there's a real call and commission that we have in in the the federal realm to be, if you will. The, the chosen instrument of God, like St. Paul, to carry the name of Jesus before kings. And that's that's a call that, that we, we have. What What is the current call or the current battle that we have, Jeannie, in the state government? Oh, gosh. So, so much happening in the states right now, and particularly for your listeners who are in your state, Ohio, it's a very interesting time. So, one of the hardest uh, public policy initiatives since Roe was overturned 
could be sort of broadly labeled as ballot initiatives or amendment initiatives or what have you. But uh, I know we can hear the thunder behind us still a little bit here. One after the other after the other. I don't mean to sound like gloomy and doomy, but we've lost one after the other after the other, even ones that we expected to win. So these are initiatives that unfortunately, in most cases, uh, enshrine a right to abortion in the Constitution and often um, up until the moment of birth paid for by tax dollars and in some cases do other bad things, too. We haven't won any of them. Yet. And the other side knows that and their Hollywood's putting a lot of money into this. I don't mean to sort of make these big, broad, you know, scary statements, but it's true. I mean, basically, yeah. like, the money that's coming in for this isn't from, you know, the states that are actually doing these initiatives. And the they're very hard to message on. Um, this, they're far outspending the pro-life side. So we are trying to rally the troops for Ohio. So Ohio has a ballot initiative coming up in November. In fact, just yesterday, the day before we're taping this, um, there was a, they needed to get enough names on uh, to actually be able to do this. And they got over, they got twice as many names as they needed to, almost twice as many names as they needed to get. So that shows that there's a lot of interest in this. And if this ballot initiative is passed in Ohio, the rights of parents to stay really informed about what's happening with their kids will be removed abortion will be enshrined in the state constitution until the time of birth. It will be paid for by tax dollars. This is sweet Ohio that has been very life protective until now. So I really want to encourage all of your listeners who are from Ohio to get out and to vote um, in November and vote against this ballot initiative. But Come to the Ohio March for Life, where we're going to be talking a whole lot about that. It's just a month in advance, and the Ohio March for Life is October 6th this year. So voting day is November 7th in Ohio. Yep. And so suppose I'm a faithful Catholic, This is, uh, and, and I'm like, okay, I want to do something to make people more aware. What do I do to make people aware of this? Because yeah. it is, it's often uh, these the states that are winning these amendment uh adjustments the the ba they go so fast it's almost like you blink and all of a sudden well shoot we tried to mobilize and the the christian response is just or if you will the pro life response is just not mobilizing fast enough like and so we're getting kind of left in the dust before uh before we can get ourselves ready for the battle you're totally right okay so a couple things one our dear friends the susan b anthony list are doing a lot of door knocking so you can get involved in their just check out susan b anthony list online and get involved in their ohio door knocking campaign um our wonderful friend aaron bear who runs the center for christian virtue his group is very organized there's protect women ohio organization that's meeting weekly. It's a committee meeting meeting weekly and doing door knocking in all sorts of different town halls, etc. So you can check that out online. Protect protect women Ohio. The day of the March for Life, we're going to have a training in the morning um, about how to get people out for this. So how to enact how to how to interact with your legislators about it, but how to get the grassroots out for this. So that's something to check out. Marchforlife.org, check out the state march menu and then Ohio will be in the drop down. But something's really on my heart right now, which, listen, we need your listeners. These are the kinds of people we need to be on local boards, whether it's local school boards, whether it's like local community boards, 
um, write op-eds, but get as involved in civics in your local community as you possibly can. Do all the other things. Pray in front of the abortion clinic. Do a pregnancy care resource center baby shower for a youth group, something like that, and then give all the the things that you bring, like the formula, the diapers, all that. Do that and to you know to educate people and to support your local pregnancy care center. But run for office. Run for office at the lowest levels and at the highest levels. Consider doing that. Write off eds. Don't stick your heads in the sand. Get really involved and change things from the inside. You can have this power to change things around you by just a prayerful presence. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because people who get woke, right? A lot of times the woke will get involved in these spheres and these policy making boards, as you're suggesting. And a lot of times when a Christian gets awakened, we instead just remove ourselves from the secular world and, and get more involved in the church. And um, the to see if I'm an awakened Christian, right? I, I need to understand that God is calling me into a life of community and a life of mission within the church, but also this life of how are you asking me, Lord? I, I was As you were sharing that, Jeannie, I was almost thinking of like, just like a, a holistic, healthy life. I, I evaluate annual goals around like, I have these financial goals. I have these health goals. I have these personal goals, professional goals, family goals. As a healthy Christian, I need to be asking myself, okay, what, I have a missional pie, right? Like, what is my mission in my family? What is my mission in my parish? What's my mission in the secular world? What's my mission at work? And to be able to say, okay, have I evaluated where God's calling me into these different spheres of influence so that I'm missionally active in all of them and I'm not missionally active in just one sphere. I think one of the, the I have a, a deep love for marriage and family life as well. But I think one of the dangers about talking about the importance or the primary vocation of marriage and family is sometimes um, we say people when they talk about marriage and family being our primary vocation uh, I often hear it in the context of them basically saying it's my only vocation right like that well the only place I really have to be on mission is marriage and family because it's my primary vocation it's like no that's not your only missional call like you're a baptized Christian you have a missional call as a baptized Christian and that call to mission to be the light that's why you're seed the candle that that call to be a light in the world actually it proceeds your vocation it's it's uh, it's innate into who you are as a uh, uh as as a a son of god a daughter of god that you are called to be holy and to be on mission for him amen and i i totally agree that there can sometimes be this misunderstanding and i think i think it was even before we started the podcast we were kidding about or no maybe right anyways the church's social teachings but it, anybody who thinks that they're not called to try to change their temporal reality to reflect God's plan has an erroneous view of the church's teachings and of the Christian vocation. I mean, that is the vocation of the laity, is to help our temporal reality reflect God's plan for man. And not to do it in a weird or like awkward way, but like it's great to be human and we love what it means to be a human person and to get out there with a big smile and and be really engaged in these kinds of things. And so coming back to the March for Life, that's our reason for being is to be a tool so that people can do that for life, to be a tool yeah. at the national level and a tool at the state level now so that people can stand in the public square, draw a line in the sand and say, 
I want to show the dignity of the unborn person. I want to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. I want to represent the poorest of the poor, the most vulnerable who can't be here today. I love that. I love that. I, I, you know, you talked about John Paul II. I mean, if anything, he was like the, the, the church is meant to be a, a community that is literally seeking to change the world and to bring it in, it create, it's a movement. The church is a movement of people who have encountered Jesus and have been filled with God's power, the Holy Spirit, to to bring about a civilization of life and love, to to turn this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. Um, it's such an exciting time to be Christian, such an exciting time to be alive. So Jeannie, you're, you're um, a faithful Catholic, and I think one of the reasons I love the public... Um, uh, missional field is it's a great opportunity for uh, Catholics to engage in ecumenical work. And so what is the opportunity that you've seen that uh, ecumenism working uh, with other Christians uh, side by side on mission to bring about the kingdom of God, how have you seen that really um, be successful? And how would you encourage us as Catholics to to perhaps think from um, a more universal perspective when it comes to mission? Yeah. So I don't know if I have the perfect answer, but, but I'm going to try. I'll just tell a story or two of my experience. So before I worked at the March for Life, um, I worked for an evangelical organization, Family Research Council, which was originally founded by Focus on the Family. And they were very pro-life, but very engaged in public policy. And an evangelical brother in the Lord said to me at one point, not knowing I'd be working with the March for Life, I'm so mortified that my brothers and sisters, my evangelical brothers and sisters don't come to the March for Life. Why is it that it's all Catholics? And ironically, the March for Life itself, the organization is non-sectarian, so we're not inherently religious. But that conversation with that fellow led to, even at that time, us trying to get more evangelicals involved in the National March for Life. And so when I did start working with it, my two biggest goals for the first two years were social media to engage young people. Because at that point, we we didn't have, we had, it was, we had a website that was described as a relic. Um, and it was truly a relic, like not in a good sense of the word. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and we didn't have evangelical involvement in the march. But what I've seen getting some of the biggest evangelical people to come and speak and be part of the march. So just this past year, we had um, uh, Franklin Graham came and did the closing prayer. And we had uh, Coach uh, Dungy, uh, who, who's evangelical as well. We have strong Catholics, but it's been incredible just to walk arm in arm. And truly, I mean, I've worked so closely with many evangelicals and a lot of them take their walk with the Lord more seriously than a lot of Catholics that I know. And they also do a phenomenal job of making people feel welcome when they go into their church. Music is usually fantastic. I mean, there's so many things that we can learn from our evangelical brothers and sisters. And don't get me wrong, like I'm so, I love the church. It's the thing I'm most grateful for, Jesus and the church. But um, we've got a lot to learn from our brothers and sisters, and we should absolutely walk hand in glove with them, especially on these issues. When I worked in the government, even groups that like Mormonism isn't Christianity, but the Mormons were really pro-family and pro-faith. And we would work together on some of these issues to get some good you know, resolutions passed at the UN or, or what have you. And I was always really edified by how strong they put public policy in and how many people were working. So I think, you know, I just go back to like, if they're not against us, they're, they're for us. And so like to, to continue to 
work with whoever will to build a culture of life is that's how we operate. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's, this is, I mean, Jesus's desire is unity. It, 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 it's very, very clear that the Jesus's desire throughout the gospels and, and, you know, in John 17 in the garden, he's crying out this prayer to the father for unity. And then, I mean, and, and the desire of the church is unity, right? That I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church and, um, and the evil one's desire is division. And the, and it, so it's really exciting because there are some times where, um, unity is very ch- difficult, right? Uh, you can't have a universal liturgy where anyone who professes to be Christian is able to go and receive communion, right? Um, but uh, but you can you can have unity here, and the church can be um, it, the church in public policy can actually operate at, in in a closer way in the way that Jesus intended the church to operate, which is such an exciting opportunity. And I think it's really um, anyone who has that hunger for unity, there's a really good um, means to, to jump into public policy to help foster that. Definitely. And at the state level, Dan, something that we learned early on is that we need to work with the evangelical groups and the Catholic groups at the state level. And and in almost every state, those two groups are an evangelical family policy council and the Catholic conference. And so we tend to work in one way or another with both of those groups in every single state. In Ohio, you have a wonderful leader in Aaron Bear at the Center for Christian Virtue. Um, And I know your audience goes much farther than Ohio, but that's just one example. In Virginia, it's the Virginia Family Foundation. We work very closely with Victoria Cobb. We also work in Virginia with the Catholic Conference, very closely with them. I myself, part of my job is as a consultant to the Bishop's Conference here in D.C. to the Pro-Life Secretariat, and it's something I take very seriously. I love to work with the bishops on these kinds of issues. So, um, yeah. So yes, we need to work with our brothers and sisters in different faiths, but at each state, there's usually an evangelical and a Catholic church that's at the state capitol when they're in session and they're fighting, you know, for life and human dignity every single day that that's open. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. The Jeannie, the, um, so you, you, you mentioned that you, um, love the Holy Spirit and you have a relationship with him. How does the Holy Spirit, um, how do you, I guess, how does your work and your mission, how do you involve and include the Holy Spirit in the work that you do? Well, I don't think I could do it without him. So by nature, I'm kind of a shy person. I'm more of an introvert. And ironically, um, he just has me in front of so many like kind of big audiences and also a lot of media. When I was at FRC, I learned to do media and I, little did I know, I mean, there, you know, like a lot, you know, and with the biggest, uh, with MSNBC, CNN, all of this. And I have to tell you, I rely a hundred percent on the Holy spirit. I mean, I prepare, I prepare hard, but I'm kind of like Moses with the speech impediment. And I think that God likes it sometimes to put us in positions where, we know it's not our own, you know, merit that's kind of getting us somewhere, but it, you sort of are the desperate person who has to lean on the Holy Spirit a little bit more. And I would definitely put myself in that category, but just also friend as I've grown older and learned to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit even more. Um, I do like to stay in dialogue as much as I can. Um, and then just, you know, sometimes you might be surprised by something that you think you hear and you have to test it. You know, it's not always the Holy Spirit, but 
um, it's beautiful. I mean, he consoles us and lifts us up in those moments that can be a little bit harder. Amen. Okay. Uh, before we wrap up, I just want to give you an open mic moment. So is there anything that you would want to share with our listeners, any, uh, missional charge you'd want to give them or anything that we didn't talk about that you want to chat about? Okay. Um, two things, just speaking about the Holy spirit. One thing that comes to mind is just that remember that Jesus does want to speak into every situation in your life. I think sometimes there's a temptation to feel like he's sure he'll be involved in the big things like vocation and stuff. But when we encounter tricky scenarios, we don't really feel like it's okay to ask him about all those things, but it is, I have found that it is the case that he wants to be very involved and wants to be consulted and loves to support and help us. So ask the Holy Spirit for help in all the tricky scenarios of our life. At least I run into a lot of tricky scenarios. Maybe your listeners don't run into as many as I do, but I do. So I ask him for a lot of help. Um, and then the second thing, I just love the quote, Pope John Paul II used it a lot. It's from St. Catherine of Siena originally, but be who you are and you will set the world ablaze on fire. And so just really, God made you, you know, a certain way with certain gifts and talents and to surrender, embrace and, and live that to the full because we need you in our world. That is how we will build a culture of life is by you being who you are, who God created you to be and by saying yes generously to that. Amen. I love that. Thank you so much. I, I think too, for all of our listeners, uh, and you shared so beautifully that um, the battle is uh, waging in Ohio right now. And if you are in Ohio, of course, do something in Ohio uh, to take action. And if you're not, um, pray. And I think the, the, I love, um, I love the decision uh, to reverse Roe v. Wade because it was a sign that God uh, answers all of our prayers. And, uh, he, and he used President Trump, uh, someone who would you, you wouldn't usually say God is going to use this guy. He used President Trump to enact the domino effect that overturned Roe v. Wade. And, and so when we pray uh, for the end of abortion, it's or for whatever. The Lord says, ask and you will receive. And he says, remain in me and whatever you ask in me, in my name, you will receive. And so there's something about remaining in him, whether it's uh, a week, two weeks, or or five decades, but remaining in him is the key and he answers all of our prayers. And so I want to just uh, close with just encouraging our listeners like, on our knees is where the battle is won. And we are called to both, right? The both be on our knees and um, to be a prophet. So that the sacrifice of the priests who offer sacrifices in the temple of the Holy Spirit in our temple through prayer and fasting, and then to be prophetic, to be on Capitol Hill or to be at the state house uh, marching and voicing, and then to be a king and to know that we have a kingly anointing and that the evil one has lost this war and that we share in Jesus's victory and uh, we can have confidence and never grow in despair because of that. Jeannie, I want to thank you so much. Uh, can you close by just letting our listeners know how they can get a hold of you? Yeah. Check us out at marchforlife.org and we're on all the different social media outlets. So we're follow us, you know, and all the different things. And um, thank you. Just so blessed by this time with you. Amen. Let's close in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we love you and we adore you. We thank you, Lord, for uh, your power and your presence. We thank you for calling us 
to be your chosen instrument, to bring your name, the name above all names, before Gentiles, before kings, and to nations. So we pray, Lord, for our nation, for every state, and for all nations, Lord, that um, every person would come to know you, to love you, and to encounter you, and to receive the fullness of the call that you have given us to respect uh, the dignity of every single human person. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Jeannie, for uh, joining us today. You've been watching Beyond Damascus, the show where encounter meets mission. We're praying for you and the mission God has for you on your life. Amen.